Exodus 34. If you guys are there, I want to read verses 6 through 8. We're going to go through the whole chapter. We're going to read verses 6 to 8, then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it together. Exodus 34. Rory, get your Bible. Six and seven, sorry, not six to eight. Verse six. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, be our teacher, that you would help us to understand the kind of God you are, that we would see what you showed Moses, that we would see you as you are, And they would respond to you as you are in faith. We pray, Father, that we would, as the psalmist said, see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Please, Lord, reveal yourself to us. Help us to to learn to follow Christ through this. We pray it in his name. And everyone who agrees says... So if you remember, we haven't been in Exodus for two weeks, so if you remember, Exodus 32, 33, and 34 really go together. Back in chapter 32, if you remember, Moses was up on the mountain. He he had been receiving the the instructions for the tabernacle, the place where God would dwell with his people. And as he's receiving those instructions, the Israelites are down in the valley, so to speak, kind of waiting for what's going to happen. And they're kind of like, what happened to Moses? So they go to Moses' brother Aaron, they say, Aaron, you need, to, you need to make a God for us, a God who can take us the rest of the way into the promised land. And so, of course, Aaron, as the bad leader he was at the time, Aaron says, sure, and, and they take all these, this gold, kind of like a, 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 a counterfeit to what God was going to call them to do for the tabernacle, and they, <coughs> excuse me, they take all this gold and they, and, and he makes this golden calf. And he says to the Israelites, hey, here's the Yahweh, your God Yahweh, who delivered you from Egypt, who will bring you into the promised land. And they basically, as the scripture says, played the harlot with this thing. And so they do this, and when Moses comes down off the mountain, God tells him, you got to get down there, these people are really messing up. He goes down the mountain, and basically, it's obvious that they've broken a covenant with God. The God that, that, that promised he would be with them, they broke that covenant, they try to make a God that would, they, would, they could feel and sense and see who would be near them. And, and ironically, in doing so, they, in a sense, were saying no to the God who had promised to be in their midst. And then, of course, we saw how Moses intervened. Moses mediated for them. And God used this as he had done before when they received the Ten Commandments. God used this to show them their need for a mediator, that they needed a mediator, that God wanted to make himself known to them through this mediator. 
And God had already promised in chapter 33 that he would indeed follow through and be their God. Through Moses' mediation, God used this and said, I will and do, do this. And we talked about how that was always God's plan. He just wanted, them to sh- he wanted Moses to see it for what he wanted to do. And so at the end of that, if you remember, in the end of chapter 33, after God kind of says, okay, Mo, don't worry, I got this. I'm going to take your people to the promised land. I'm going to finish what I started. Uh, that's the kind of God I am. Moses is in awe of this, and he just says, God, would you show me your glory? God, I want to see what you're really, really like. And of course, you, you remember at the end of the chapter, God says to Moses, okay, Moses, I'm going to have to hide you in a rock, and I'll pass by, and you won't see my face, but you'll see, in a sense, the trail I leave behind. You'll see what I do. You'll, you'll, you'll get a sense of my, all of my goodness, is what he says. Now, what's interesting about that phrase, all of my goodness, we see this picked up in the Psalms. When David writes Psalm 27, talking about the struggles that, that he's facing, wondering uh, and, and wanting to believe that God's going to get him through those struggles, he makes this statement in verse 13. Listen, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, this is interesting to me. This is really personal to me. Because I have, in recent years, gone through a couple dark things. And in one of those times, when I was going through one of those dark times, I remember sitting in my lounge, talking to Sarah, my wife, and saying, I I don't know how this works. I, I believe God's word that I'll see the goodness, his goodness in the land of living, but what does that mean? Does it mean that I'm gonna have my prayers answered for sure? Does it mean my expectations are actually going to come to pass? I mean, what does it mean? And, and I, at the time, I didn't connect what the psalmist prayed, what David prayed in Psalm 27 with what we see here in Exodus 34, but I think they're connected. I think David, when he wrote that psalm, was probably thinking back, yes, God, I'm going to see your goodness. You showed it to Moses, you'll show it to me. And here's the thing that I really want us to, to understand. In God restoring his people... And this is what he does. He's always been in the business of restoring his people. He will continue to be faithful to be in the business of restoring his people. When God restores his people, that's me and you who've put our faith in Jesus and yet struggle to walk. When God restores us, that's you if you're not a Christian yet and you're kind of getting to the place where you know, I, I think I need Jesus. When he restores you, he does so not because you're good, but because he's good. And he wants you to see that goodness. He wants you, as the as psalmist says in Psalm 34, he wants you to taste and see that he's good. And so what we're going to look at today in this story is we're going to see through this story the goodness of God. We're going to see how we, we can see the goodness of the Lord in a land of living. So three things about God's goodness that I want us to see. In verses 1 to 10, here's the first thing we're going to see. We're going to see that God defines the good that we all want Look at verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first. Remember, he had the tablets before that he threw down and smashed and had the ten words, the ten commandments on there. He says, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready, God says to Moses, by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. 
And so God's, what God's doing here is he's preparing Moses to receive this goodness that he's promised. He's saying to Moses, listen, I'm going to initiate how this happens. And this is always the way it works. And this might be a little bit mind-blowing to you, especially if you're still in that place of wondering, am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? Do I want to believe this? I don't want to believe this. You need to understand something. Even if you're curious about Christianity, it's God who does the initiating of that. It's never us. Oh, we might want to know about different gods or religions, but if we're wanting, if we're attracted to the God of Scripture, it's because God is initiating something in us. He's always the initiator. And so God initiates with Moses. Here's how I want you to do it. Look at verse 4. It says, So Moses cut the two stones of tablet the first. He rose early in the morning, and he went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord commanded him. And he took in his hands two tablets of stones, and the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. I love this. Moses, God says, draw near to me. Moses, in faith, draws near to God. And what does God do? He draws near to Moses. He, Moses ascends this mountain, which was really hard for him, but God takes a farther route down to meet Moses where he is. It's a bigger step down to meet us where we are than it is for us to go up where God is. Actually, we can't ever go where God is. We've got to go where he says to meet him, and he meets us there. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? James, doesn't, James 4, it talks about, draw near to God, I'll draw near to you. So what God's doing here is he's preparing Moses to receive good. So what's the good? Well, we just read it earlier in verses 6 and 7. Let's, we're going to probably spend more time in this than even the rest of the, 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 the chapter, but I, I really think it's important that we see what God's doing. Verse 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. This by itself is important. This is not Moses contemplating what God might be like. This is God declaring what he is like. One of the things that, that makes Christianity unique, makes biblical faith unique, is that we believe, not that we're figuring God out as we go, but that God is the one who's revealed himself. This is important. We're going to come back to that later. But God reveals himself, and he, and he, says, he says, here's what he says about himself. God says about himself, the Lord, the Lord. This is his covenant name. We'll talk more about that in a second. He says, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now we need to understand that this is both amazing to think about. I think so we read these traits and we go, those are really nice. Nice people are like this. A nice God's like this. But we have to see it in its context. There were no gods like this. There were no gods like this. And it's interesting here, too, because we're going to see here what God is, is, is saying about himself, especially the fact that he starts off by saying, the Lord, the Lord. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, her, uh, initiates his covenant name twice. He's one to emphasize, this is who I am. Remember when he reveals to Moses that his covenant name is Yahweh. Do you remember that? Way back in chapter 3? Well, what do you say? Listen, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God is the unchanging one who he's always been, he will always be. And this is important. In fact, this is amazingly hopeful because the God who always is says this, listen, I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. I'm merciful and gracious and faithful. 
Don't you want a God like that? Wouldn't you be happy to have a friend like that? Can you imagine a better God? I was thinking about this morning, I was thinking about uh, starting the sermon by saying, I want you to imagine the best God you can imagine, but I thought that could go pear-shaped really quick. But, but, but here's the reality. We can't actually even make up a God that's this good. A God who is always good. We can't imagine a person that's always good. I'm thinking of someone right now who goes to servant church, and I'm not going to say who they are because they're here and they'll be embarrassed if I bring up their name. But this person, and some of you guys will know who I'm talking about as soon as I say this, this person serves all the time. Every time you turn around, this person is serving, doing something for somebody. And it's so obvious when someone says, gosh, we need a real need for this. I know, ask so-and-so. Because they know that they're always looking to serve. And what's amazing, this person isn't in leadership. And we think, man, that person's always good. Well, I know them well enough, and they'd be happy for me to say this, but I, again, won't say their name. They're not always good. I know their spouse really well, and they'll tell you, they're not always good. As great as they are, as exemplary as they are to all of us, they're not always good. None of us are good. No, not one, the scripture says. But God is always good. And his goodness is shown in how he commits to a people, as we're seeing in this context, he commits to a people that are stubborn and stiff-necked, that don't actually want to do what's good for them to do. He still says, I'm committed to them. You see, this is the thing that's amazing about God. God doesn't say, hey, be good, and I'll save you. God says, I'm good, so I'll save you. God's goodness is unchangeable. God said, I will show you all my goodness. And he's showing Moses, look, my goodness is unchangeable. It's always there. Listen, God says to uh, Israel when they're in a season of not doing so good, in the last prophet we have in the Old Testament, Malachi, God says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O Jacob, you're not consumed. You know what that means? God says, yeah, you're right, Jacob. If you're feeling like you should be wiped out, you should be rejected, you should not have a, 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 be in covenant with me, if you feel that, you're right. But guess what? The reason you're not is because I don't change. I'm still good. In fact, God's so good, he doesn't gloat about his goodness. When I do something nice for my wife, and my wife says to me, honey, that was so nice. You're so good. I go, yes, I know. <laughs> I am a rocking husband. You're so lucky to be married to me. God doesn't gloat about his goodness. Never. He just declares it so we know we can trust him. Now, if it ended there, we'd still have to, if, if we were thoughtful people and his goodness ended there, we would probably have to ask ourselves, okay, can we trust this God? Or is this kind of just some of, Wishful thinking, pie in the sky, a happy thought. We have a nice little God, a happy little God. He's always good. But he says this, and this is so profound and so difficult for us to get our head around. Uh, we need to think carefully. In verse 7, God says about himself that he is keeping steadfast love for thousands. It can be translated in some versions, thousands of generations which would fit well in the context, but either way it fits because he's going to give this message through Moses to the thousands of Israelites. But he keeps a steadfast love for thousands. Listen, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Iniquity is like inequity or, or injustice 
They're all sin in one sense. They're all bad. But iniquity is when, when we, we, we fail to do what's right or just. That's iniquity. Okay? And, and then this idea of... of <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. This idea of transgression. It's you're going beyond a boundary. God says, here's where you should go and no further. And you go, ah, well, I'll step a little further. That's transgression. And sin is just basically missing the mark, full stop. And so it's like God saying, I am the kind of God that forgives every kind of sin that you're guilty of. And in case you're wondering, you're guilty of all these things. But then he says this, and this is where it gets a little scary. He says, but who will by no means Clear the guilty. Now, I want to come back to that because it's really important. But notice he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, we talked about this earlier in chapter 20 of Exodus. But just to make sure we all remember, a household uh, would, would be three and four generations. It wouldn't just be a single person or it wouldn't just be... Uh, just a couple, it wouldn't just be a couple just with their kids, it would be grandma and grandpa and great-grandpa, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, they would all live in one household. So in a sense, he's saying, I'm visiting the sin on the household. In other words, this is God giving a sober warning that your sin does affect your whole household. That you don't sin in a bubble. When you fail to do the things that are good, when you pursue the things that are not good, it doesn't just affect you, it affects those who are immediately around you. Anybody experience that here? Anybody know what it's like to experience the consequence of someone else's sin in your household? We all have. And everyone in our household has experienced the effects of our sin. And God is saying, I'm warning you, this is what sin does. But this phrase... This phrase that he uses, this, this, this by no means clearing the guilty. How does that work? Because I need forgiveness, but I'm guilty. If he doesn't clear the guilty, how am I going to get forgiveness? In fact, in one sense, this doesn't make sense. How can there be a God, listen, whose goodness is unchangeable? Because if, he's, if his goodness is unchangeable, listen, he has to judge sin. He's got to judge injustice. Anybody here want, uh, you know, uh, sex traffickers to get away with what they do? Anybody think that's a good idea? Yeah. Anybody want pedophiles to get away with, with what they do? Anybody want corporate thieves to get away with what they do? Anybody think, yeah, let them go, who cares, no big deal. No, when you, get a, when you feel the effects of these big things, when you see the injustice of the world, you get angry. In fact, listen, you've probably gotten angry at God. You probably thought, well, gosh, <coughs> Preacher's always talking about God's good, but if God's good, why is the world so bad? So if God is truly, absolutely good, he has to judge sin. He has to. Now here's the thing. Here's the rub. We all want a good God who both overlooks our injustices, it was just an accident, but judges all our enemies. This is what we do. But if he's like that, if he overlooks our stuff and judges our enemies, is he actually good? So how does this work? How do we have a God who says, this is the goodness we all want? Because here's the reality. 
We need this mercy, don't we? We need this forgiveness and the steadfast love that God's promising. We desperately need this. If you don't sense your need for this, man, this is what we've been praying for you for. But we need this. So how does this do it? How does God be just and render innocent those who are actually guilty? How does he do it? Listen, we read this, these verses too, a couple of verses a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to say it again because they're awesome. Romans chapter 3, I'm reading from the NIV here. The Apostle Paul writes, God presented Christ. Here's the answer. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God did it, listen, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, that is, in the time <laughs> that we live in now, the time that Paul wrote this, in the time between Christ's first coming and second coming. To demonstrate his righteousness at this present time, so as, notice, to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The God who absolutely hates injustice we, f- we, we get frustrated with injustice, but we don't always hate it enough to actually act, do we? But the God who hates injustice hates sin so much that he acts on it. He acts on it this way. His anger is stirred <coughs> to then take on flesh, which, by the way, has always been his plan before he created the world. His anger is stirred. He takes on flesh in the person of Jesus, and he lives a perfectly just life. He shows us what real justice looks like and he allows himself to be unjustly condemned and crucified. And while he's being crucified on this cross, what does he say? He prays the first verse from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we have three hours of darkness while he's on the cross. Why? To show that God is judging sin. And he's doing that as he judges his own son. Why? Because God is. God is absolutely unchangeably good, and his goodness is absolutely unchangeably just. He can look at you and say, your sin is worthy of death, and say, and I can justify you because my son absorbed that death in your place. Is this not the God we all want? If it's not the God you want, I'm sad for you because there is no other God. Because the good news, this is the God who is. And the God who is offers himself to us. Going back to Exodus, what's going on right here? Moses says, show me your glory. God says, you will see all my goodness. Here's my goodness, Moses. It's a goodness that is, is absolutely unchangeable and it's absolutely just. And Moses is probably going, I don't even get it. Because he wouldn't fully get it. And we'll see that more in a minute. But what's lovely is how God confirms his good commitment to Moses. Because what does Moses do? Verse 8, Moses quickly bows his head toward the earth and he worships. It's always, this is always when you know you have saving faith. Is when your response is worship. God, you're worthy. He quickly bowed his head and he worshiped. And he said, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, 
and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. You know what's interesting about this? We've heard this phrase, stiff-necked people, three other times so far in Exodus. And each of those times, it was God who said it. God says, people are stiff-necked. And it's like, Moses didn't disagree, but now Moses is going, oh, I get it, Lord. I get it. We are an absolute stiff-necked people. And so unless you pardon us, there's no hope. So does God hold this over Moses' head? No, look at verse 10. He said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels, he says, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are, you are shall see the work of the Lord. It is an awesome thing that I will do for you. I love this. It's when Moses realizes, God, none of us deserve this, that God says, good, you get it? Now you know that it's me and who I am that guarantees it, not you. I'm not going to restore you because you're good. I'm going to restore you because I'm good. Now you get it. Now, if we were to stop there, we might go, oh, that's lovely. I'll just kind of bask in that for a while. And it is good to bask in this. It's good to worship God because of this. But God calls his people not just to know he's good, but to commit to what's good. In fact, God calls us as his covenant people to do the good that's good for us. Look at verse 11. We're going to see now, not only does, this, um, <coughs> does God define the good we all want, but God commands the good we all need. Look at verse 11. I'm going to read 11 to 17. Follow with me. It's a lot. God says, Observe what I command to you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These would have been the tribes in the land of, that they're about to inherit. He says, take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of that land to which you go, lest it, <coughs> sorry, lest it become a snare uh, in your midst. You shall tear down the altars and break their pillars and break down their ashram. That would have been a sort of a pole-like uh, uh, idol um, or a pole-like way to worship an idol. For you shall worship no other god for the Lord." whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after other gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited and eat of his sacrifice, and take of, take of their daughters for your sons, and their sons whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods, and you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Now, now understand what God's saying here. God is calling them. He's saying, Israel, you need to understand, my people need to understand exclusive worship. You have to know this. This is the good you need. Now, let's talk about exclusivity. Why that's important. Why is it, why is it important? Why does God stress this? Because it's clear all over the place. The first two commandments are about exclusivity. All the commandments are absolute. But the first two are about exclusivity. It's God and God alone. He's the only God and the only God we are to worship. Why does he say this? Because here's the reality. When we recognize that we're only meant to, uh, to worship God, that kind of exclusivity, it keeps us from taking good things and making them God things. Because there's a lot of good stuff that God's blessed us with. Thank you, Nitola. Thank you so much. There's a lot of good things that God's blessed us with. I, I, as much as I brag about how what a great husband I am, I have a great wife. 
And we have enjoyed 31 plus years of really good marriage. And it's very easy to make a God out of, one, out of each other. Not that we like, God goes, oh, Sarah, not like that. But just in the sense of, you're the most important thing in my life. I find my fulfillment and my peace and my satisfaction in you. It's easy to do that because it's a good relationship. And that good relationship is a gift from God. But God says, you're not to worship Sarah. You're to worship me. Sarah, you're not to worship me. Stop now. You're to worship God. You can, I'll tell you what. If you have kids, you know how easy it is to do with your kids. Now, sometimes you want to kill them. You think they're the devil. But a lot of times you want to just live for them. Everything is about what they get. Everything is about what's best for them. What about your career? Feeling like you're doing something good and important with your life. These are all good gifts from God that we are tempted to make into God things that we worship. Because God says, no, no I'm going I'm to make a good command for you. You've got to worship exclusively me. It protects us. It keeps us enjoying the good things. You see what I'm saying? But also listen. It protects us from the commands of false gods. Have you ever been in a relationship that you thought this was the ultimate relationship and so you give yourself to that person and they start treating you worse and worse and worse? Why? Because nobody can handle the kind of allegiance that's meant only for God. Maybe they can't handle the pressure of you depending so much on you so they start pushing you away. Or maybe they see the power they have over you so they start manipulating you. Either way, God says, no, you are to worship me exclusively because nobody else can handle being worshipped. No one else can take that pressure. No one else can meet that need. But also, listen, exclusivity, it knits our hearts to whatever we invest in. This is the principle that Jesus talks about. It happens to be in the context of money, but I think it fits well in any kind of false god we're tempted to worship. Listen, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He goes on to say, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can take out money and say, you cannot serve God and marriage. You cannot serve God and children. You cannot serve God and career. And I found out before I moved to England, you cannot serve God and ministry. Your worship needs to be exclusively his and everything else has to flow from that. Can you see this is a good thing that God commands us? And Israel needed to learn this. He needed to understand exclusive worship. But also, 18 to 26, Israel also needed to practice an intentional love. Intentional. That means we do it on purpose. It means we make plans. It means we... We think about and we prepare to do it. Look at verse, uh, uh, verse 18. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I command you at the time appointed in the, mount, the month of Abib. And at, for in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. We talked about what this feast was about. We've seen it a couple times in Exodus. The point is he said, I want you to set this, side, this time aside. Drop down to verse 20. Um, where am I? Verse 21, God says, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first, fruit, uh, first fruits of the wheat harvest, the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Notice, 
Verse 23, three times in a year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, for I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders, for you shall covet your, or no one shall covet your land when you go to appear before the Lord three times in a year. And you shall, offer the, uh, you shall not offer the blood of sacrifice with anything leaven, or let the sacrifice of the feasts of Passover remain until morning. Now, I know there's a lot of detail that if you've not heard this stuff before, you're going, what is this on about? You can go back and listen to previous messages where we talk about this stuff in detail. But here's what you need to see. What God is calling them to, listen, he's saying, look, I want you to be intentional about loving me first, about this exclusive worship, about following me. And that intentionality, listen, it means setting time aside to seek me. Setting time aside to seek me. You need to be intentional about this. It means you need to plan. You need to prepare. You need to know what it's meant to look like. No one worships God by accident. It requires intentionality. I mean, come on, guys, doesn't this just make sense? I mean, isn't it common sense? Do you have any relationships that are of any value that you don't have to be intentional about? Oh, you might have relationships where it just kind of naturally flows and you're there, but there's still intentionality. You still have to kind of make time for people. You still have to think about their feelings, what they need, what they desire. Now, God's not needy. He's not going, come spend time with me. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't even need relationship because God is relationship. But he invites us into this relationship that he wants with us, this love relationship that he's always had within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. He invites us into this and says, if you want this, I'm requiring intentionality. I mean, can we, can we be really honest here? Have you noticed how easy it is, maybe even especially post-COVID, how easy it is to kind of let Sunday worship be optional? Can we be honest about that? I'm not a legalist. I'm not saying if you don't go to church every Sunday, you're not really intentional about your walk with God. But isn't it easy for us to do this? Things that I was, you know, I, I became a Christian in 1987 out of a completely non-church background. I had nothing to do with church had no religious experience really whatsoever other than my weird ideas about God that I kind of picked up here or there. But when I, when I came to Christ, when I was converted and I started following Jesus, I'm so thankful that I was discipled in such a way that said, listen, it's a relationship with God, so one of the best things you can do is every morning read the Bible, pray before you read and say, God, show me what this means. Help, show me what this tells me about you. Show me um, how I'm supposed to apply this to my life. And just let it be a daily practice of taking time alone with God. And so I thought, well, that's what it's normal. It's what all Christians do, right? That's what we all do. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us are intentional about even just having a daily time alone with God. Now, I know it's hard. We've got little kids and life's busy. I totally get all that. But guess what? If you don't aim for something, you'll hit it every time. Aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. But there's something about that intentionality that God's commanding here. Now, we're not called to go to Jerusalem three times a year. That would be kind of cool, but we're not called to that. But there's still something that, that applies to us here. In fact, go back to verse 19. In verse 19 and 20, listen, God commands, he says, All that open the womb are mine, all the male livestock and the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of donkeys, you shall redeem <coughs> With a lamb, if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. We talked about this before, and I know it's kind of weird. We won't get into it again today, but just follow with me, okay? All the firstborn <coughs> of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear 
before me empty-handed. Now drop down to verse 26. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Don't ask me about that last bit. I was still kind of confused. But here's the reality. Again, we talked about all these details earlier in Exodus, but I think, again, here's the reality that we need to commit to here, that we need to apply here. Intentionality means recognizing that everything that you have belongs to God. Everything. I don't care if you inherit it or you work three jobs to get it. It's God's. Now, I'm going to preempt you. You're going, he's going to say, you have to give the church. He's what's coming next. I feel it. I feel it. No, I'm not. Not going there. I'm saying that God calls us to recognize it's all His. It's His. It's your stewardship, it's your responsibility, but it's His. The Bible says this is plain. Listen, in, in Psalm 24, it says, The earth is the Lord, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. That doesn't just mean that the, the, the treasure that you have or the material possessions you have are all God's. They are, but also your time is all the Lord's. It's all the Lord's. But also, all the things that you think you need to have, the Lord knows exactly what you need, and they're all His. Again, going back to Matthew 6, how Jesus talks about this, listen. So don't worry about all these things saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. You know what that is? Intentionality. And live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. I can say, in, in being a, I've been a Christian since 1987, and I have gone without lots of things that I wanted, but I have never, ever not had what I needed. And i got to be honest, I've had a lot of things I wanted as well. But I'll tell you what, this is not a reward for doing the right thing, but it, it encourages me to do what God calls me to do, which is I need to practice intentional love. Lord, you're more important to me than this other goal that I have. You're more important. I need that. You need that. You need a God, and there's only one God who's worthy to be worshipped and served like this. It's this God of the Scriptures, the God who's revealing himself to Moses in what we're reading right now. So lastly, quickly, we're going to go through this last bit fast. God commands the good we all need, and we experience God's goodness through his word. Now, before we get into this, I don't want you to think I'm just talking about Bible study, as important as that is. So just keep that in mind. But look at verse 27. The Lord said to Moses, write these words in accordance to, with the words that I have made covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He, he neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the law, the Ten Commandments, literally the Ten Words. Now, it's interesting because some versions make it clear that God wrote this again with his finger. Others make it sound like maybe Moses did. You, you can wrestle with that one. But here's what we know for sure. Listen, Moses rewrites what God promises again. And this is what's great. God always makes sure that his people have 
His revealed truth. Starting in March, we're going to do a once a month series on our Bring and Share Sundays called The God Who Speaks. And we're going to talk about what we know about this book, the scriptures, and what we believe about this book, the scriptures, and how we are to utilize this book, the scriptures. And I hope that at the end of that series, you go, man, this book is different than any other, well, as we're going to see, it's a library, not just a book. But this is different than anything else you've ever encountered. But then what happens? Verse 29. So when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets in the testimony of his hand, he came down from the mountain. And Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Moses and all the people of Israel saw Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and, be, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and the elders and, uh, and the leaders of the congregation returned to him. Moses talked with them, and afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them uh, all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when the Lord had finished, Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil. <clears throat> over his face. And we'll talk about why he put a veil over his face again in a second, but I want you to see what's happening here. God makes sure Moses rewrites all that he's promised to his people. His people had already broken the covenant. Before he even had received all the covenant, they already broke the covenant. And God, in his goodness, says, I'm going to restore them because I'm good, not because they're good. And God wants to make sure they know exactly how good he is. So Moses, write this all down, make it really clear. We want to make sure they know exactly how good I am. And then when they're afraid, going, this is weird. The guy's glowing. I don't know why he's glowing. I don't want to talk to this guy. When that's happening, what happens is Moses says, no, 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 Aaron, you guys got to come here. You got to hear this. No matter how weird it kind of seems, you got to hear what God says. You got to hear how good God has revealed himself to be. You got to know what God's covenant is so you can do the good things that God's called you to do. You got to do this. And so they do it. In other words, Moses explains the good God says. By the grace of God, that's what all of us do who are on the teaching team. By the grace of God, we want you to see the God of Scripture. Lastly, when Moses went in before the Lord to, uh, to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. So we just saw he put the veil on after he got in speaking, but when he goes before God, he takes off the veil. He speaks to God face to face, nothing between him and God, right? And it says, when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, and the skin of Moses' face was shining. So when he comes out and he tells the people all the good stuff, he's still the glowing dude, and, and, and everyone's seeing the glowing face, and, and they're hearing him explain. So he Sees God without the veil, he explains God without the veil. You guys getting me? And Moses then puts the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Why? Why put the, the veil back on? Well, we're going to close with this. It's going to be on the screen. It's going to take three slides. I think it's a big section, but follow me. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul tells us why Moses is doing this. And when he tells us this, listen, you don't want to miss this. It shows us that we have, listen, we have even a greater privilege than Moses had. Listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. 
but the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the Old Testament, Old Covenant is being read, (laughs) the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil, notice, can only be removed by believing in Christ. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered by that veil and they do not understand. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord, and the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him, that's like Jesus, as we are changed into his glorious image. Now listen to me. This veil that Moses put on, it shows the limitations of the ministry of Moses. It shows the limitations of the revelation that God gave to Moses. It's all completely 100% true, but it's not all the truth. The fullness of the truth comes with who? Jesus. The Bible says of Jesus, listen, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Moses heard about God. All of us, by the Spirit of God, who put our faith in Jesus, see Him. Moses, God, show me your glory. Moses says, you'll see all my goodness. He sees all God's goodness. And then guess what we get? In Jesus All God's goodness. See, Moses' point ultimately reflects someone much better than himself, and so do we. If you're here today and you are still investigating Christianity, you're still thinking about this stuff, maybe you're even someone who's been coming to church for a long, long, long time, and you're still trying to get your head around what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? To be a Christian, listen, means recognizing not who Jesus was, but who Jesus is. Jesus is God's only begotten Son. He's the very image of God's glory in bodily form. Jesus is the goodness of God communicating to a world that said, we think that goodness should be crucified and rejected. And it's so good. Listen, he's so good, he rises from the dead and says, here's my nailed scarred hands. Will you believe me now? Will you trust me now? Will you follow me as Lord now? This is seeing the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Guys, there's nothing better that anybody can offer you than Jesus. You don't need Christianity. You need Christ. You need Jesus. I want to pray for you right now. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would do by your Holy Spirit what only you can do. Lord, none of us believe without the work of your Holy Spirit. Would you work in our lives? Would you 
call us to saving faith? Would you cause us, Lord, to see Jesus the way he actually is? As glorious as it was that you showed yourself to Moses, Lord, and we're so thankful that we have this in your written, trustworthy word. But Lord, as glorious as it is, it's not nearly as glorious as Christ himself. We want to see Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. And Father, I just thank you so much that you start works in us that you finish. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you today and wants to know you or, or, or is, is now come to know you, Lord, that, that they would tell us this and that we could encourage them and pray with them. And we pray, Father, for anyone here who, who I pray, Lord, for anyone here who knows you but has been struggling to trust you. Lord, can they see your goodness? Would you just remind them of your goodness? Lord, you call us to trust. You call us to believe that you are who you've shown yourself to be in Jesus. Help us to do that. Lord, we pray that you'd use our fellowship time afterwards, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to draw near to you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, amen. Right. So so uh, encourage you guys to get some more coffee if there's any left uh, or a cup of tea if there's any hot water left. But if you need prayer for anything or if you have any questions, please ask. Uh, again, I was the world's biggest cynic uh, before I came to Christ, so you're not going to offend me by your questions. Uh, so please feel free to ask me or, or any one of the other leaders uh, uh, any question that you might have. Uh, or if you need prayer, come to us and we want to just pray with you. All right? Get you a house group if you can this week, and hopefully we'll see you next. All right? God bless.